Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead at AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, which can be found at unmaskingchoice.ca. Now, over the last number of weeks, we've been taking a look at different human rights violations and historical injustices as well as present injustices, and we've been taking a look at, at different people who have fought those injustices and and what we might be able to learn from them here in the future. And the interview that I have for you today directly plays into uh, those topics. I'll be interviewing later in this show the Reverend Gerald Wilberforce, who is the great-grandson of the famous abolitionist William Wilberforce. Now, William Wilberforce was probably the most famous of all the social reformers, in part because he is the first of the great social reformers. And in many ways, uh, he and his colleagues at the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade revolutionized what it meant to be an activist, what it meant to be a social reformer. And a lot of the tactics, from showing imagery of the victims to uh, uh, petitioning politicians, to starting a grassroots movement. These things were all very much pioneered by William Wilberforce and his abolitionist colleagues. Many of you have probably heard of him from the film Amazing Grace or perhaps from the, I think, a much better book of the same name by Eric Metaxas. And essentially the story of William Wilberforce is not simply exceptional for what he did, but from where he came from. Because originally, William Wilberforce did not enter politics to engage in any sort of a humanitarian cause or calling. William Wilberforce uh, was from a very wealthy family and, and had a very rich inheritance. And he entered politics with a group of other very uh, young people, including one of his closest friends, William Pitt the Younger, who would later become Prime Minister. And during the early years of his political career, William Wilberforce engaged in a lot of partying and, and really frivolous running around London with a lot of, of the other politicians, but then he underwent a religious conversion and he started to grapple with the idea that he should be doing something more, that his life should be dedicated to something, that surely his short time on earth could be better served by serving others. And at first he considered becoming a pastor. But then in 1787, he was approached uh, by a group of people called the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, which consisted of a number of Quakers and Protestants who were dedicated to abolishing the slave trade as one of that era's great moral evils. The Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade included such a famous men as Thomas Clarkson and Granville Sharp. Uh, these people aren't as well known to history now as William Wilberforce was, but uh, their activism and their grassroots and their work exposing what the slave trade was enabled him to make his appeals in Parliament. And when they approached William Wilberforce, asking him to become the political voice of abolishing the slave trade, to be a voice in the halls of Parliament for those who were suffering on West Indies plantations and those who were suffering and dying and being tortured and raped in the, in the infamous Middle Passage where slaves were stuffed into the holds of ships. William Wilberforce believed he, after much prayer, had found his life's great calling. He called it one of the two objects that he would be dedicating his life to. 
And in 1807, as history tells us, a full 20 years later, the Slave Trade Act passed both houses of Parliament and William Wilberforce's campaign had been a success. But along the way, William Wilberforce and the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade tell us so many things about how to confront a culture that is engaged in a great evil and how to inspire such a moral revulsion in that culture for the injustice that politicians are forced to act. Now, we need to keep in mind that the slave trade and slavery itself were institutions that had been around for hundreds of years and were very deeply ingrained into British society. There were a number of problems. First of all, uh, your average uh, you know, Britoner had never seen a slave. Most of the slaves were undergoing horrific treatment in the slave ships or on the West Indies plantations. So Wilberforce and the abolitionists somehow had to bring home the reality of the slave trade to those in Great Britain who'd never really seen it. Second of all, there was always the, the foreign policy worries, the diplomacy worries, that if, if Great Britain got out of the slave trade, you know, the French and the Dutch would take their place. And these, these were times of great turmoil, and these trade wars were very, very significant. In fact, a number of times Wilberforce and the abolitionists were accused of, of being downright treasonous for suggesting the abolishing of a trade that would put them at a disadvantage with their international partners. So it's important to remember when we look at the slave trade that it was no mean feat to turn people, often with very little voting rights, against this institution that was being upheld by those in power and being upheld for what was in their minds very, very good reasons. The abolitionists went to work across Great Britain uh, first to raise public awareness because they knew that if the public of Great Britain were to turn against the slave trade, then and only then would the politicians be forced to act. Because when William Wilberforce in 1787 uh, first attempted to make political headway, he was quite convinced that with his great qualities of oratory and, and with his magnificent eloquence that he would be able to sway those uh, in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords to vote against the slave trade. Edmund Burke, uh, one of the greatest speakers of all time, called Wilberforce's speeches against slavery uh, the best speeches he'd ever heard. And I'll, I'll read you an example of one of those speeches in the British Parliament. Policy, sir, is not my principle, and I am not ashamed to say it. There is a principle above everything that is political. And when I reflect on the command that says, Thou shalt do no murder, believing the authority to be divine, how can I dare to set up any reasonings of my own against it? And sir, when we think of eternity and of the future consequences of all human conduct, what is here in this life that should make any man contradict the principles of his own conscience, the principles of justice, the laws of religion, and of God? Sir, the nature and all the circumstances of this trade are now laid open to us. We can no longer plead ignorance. We cannot evade it. It is now an object placed before us. We cannot pass it. We may spurn it. We may kick it out of our way. But we cannot turn aside so as to avoid seeing it. For it is brought now so directly before our eyes that this house must decide and must justify to all the world and to their own consciences the rectitudes of their grounds and of the principles of their decision. Let not Parliament be the only body that is insensible to national justice. But what Wilberforce and the abolitionists had realized was that until the evidence was laid bare before the British public, the slave trade would remain a reality. And that is precisely what they did.
They took images of slaves created by the porcelain maker Josiah Wedgwood, showing a, a slave with chains hanging off his limbs and the slogan, Am I too not a man and a brother? They showed diagrams of slaves packed into the hold like cargo of the ship, the SS Brooks, released in 1788, that inspired a moral revulsion in those in Great Britain to what they were seeing, showed the humanity of the victim as well as the great injustice that was being inflicted on those victims who, as they were rapidly seeing, were men and were brothers and were also created in the image of God. These great lessons we can take from the abolition of the slave trade. Numerous lessons. One, that men can dedicate themselves to causes. Men and women can decide to fight injustices and that by the grace of God and using uh, tactics that have been proven effective again and again throughout history, success can be had. That once the victims are exposed to the public, that moral revulsion can be inspired. That when the ear won't listen, as the politicians refuse to listen to Wilberforce's eloquent speeches, we must tell it to the eye. Because when the British public saw what was going on, they could no longer ignore it. And that leads me directly into an interview where uh, the Reverend Gerald Wilberforce, who is the direct descendant of William Wilberforce, uh, will share just a few insights about his great ancestor and what he thinks the story of William Wilberforce has to tell us here today. What was it like uh, growing up knowing that your ancestor was William Wilberforce? <laughs> well, for a long while I didn't quite know who he was. Uh, he was just somebody who had my name. And uh, in particular, we didn't really speak about it at home. I think my dad really wanted me to grow up on my own without reference to anybody else. Mm -hmm. But I think what made a big difference, about six years ago, we were then looking at the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. And that prompted me to take a greater interest in what was going on. And so I studied a bit more and so have discovered the person himself. And what was that like, that journey of discovery? It was really very exciting because I had no, I hadn't really any idea of what this man was like. Um, and having given quite a lot of talks about it, mainly about slavery itself, I now recognise uh, what a tremendous individual he was um, and what he stood stood for, particularly as an evangelical Christian. Which was strange, really, because uh, my family then became Roman Catholic. And so having this person in the background has become uh, particularly important to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so we, about six years ago, when you, when you started to do this research, what sort of topics did, uh, did an interest in William Wilberforce inspire for you? Well, I mean, I think that when the important thing was what we were talking about was in this country, in the United Kingdom, it, uh, there was a lot of talk about slavery <laughs> and, uh, you know, what it meant. And, uh, and so I decided I'd get down to do something about the transatlantic slavery and what it meant and what the implications were. And then later on than that, I then went on to talk about modern slavery, modern forms of slavery, in particular people uh, trafficking <laughs> and other issues at all. And so... Uh, you know, one got the idea that it wasn't something that happened all those 200 years ago. It was something that was quite relevant for our time today. In fact, you know, there are now more slaves in the world than there were when he abolished them, which is a frightening statistic. 
Right, right, because was we we see the the drive for slaves being driven by pornography and, and things like this, especially out here in North America. And this sort of leads me to what we today can learn from somebody like a William Wilberforce, because history is in many ways only really valuable insofar as it can it can tell us where we've been, but also highlight where we're going. And we see across Western civilization now the dehumanization of many different people groups. What do you think? Uh, the story of William Wilberforce, a man who started, you know, dozens of different organizations uh, to help different groups of people. What do you think his story can really tell us? Well, I think the important is that there are people in every generation who, for whatever reason, I would say as a Christian to the grace of God, but for whatever reason, they feel uh, called to stand up and do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I think the great problem is that we will wait and for somebody else to do something. And we forget that really there are a lot of issues in our day that really do need addressing. And it means somebody to get up and do it. It's all very well to listen to some somebody else. Now, not all people are going to be called to do what he did. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of people who gathered together and they prayed about it and they thought that this was important. And the other thing to say was that he was a very rich man of his time. Mm -hmm. He asked what he should do with his wealth. And he felt that um, after... So a lot of soul-searching, a, a lot of feeling that it wasn't much good, a lot of feeling that he was wasting his time, that he then comes to the conclusion where he says, no, I'm going to stand up and do something about it. And I think that applies to a lot of people today, whether you're, to, I mean, all issues um, about the dignity of a human person from conception till death. Um, if we hold that these, that... Uh, people are important and they need uh, preserving, we need to care for them, then somebody has to do it. The great danger, I think, is to say, someone else will do it, or the state will do it, but it won't be me. And I think we've all got a, a personal responsibility to do something about it. Because mm -hmm, you've said before that as the great-great-grandson of William Wilberforce, if he was alive today, you think he'd be fighting things like abortion? Yes, I did, because, but, but, but I'm not only abortion. I also said that there are other things as well that he might be involved in mm -hmm. about, the whole, about the whole person. I use the idea of abortion because in many ways there are amazing parallels. I mean, one would be that the, the unborn child is considered not to be a person. Mm -hmm. That was the same also for the slave. The slave, because he was black, was not considered to be a real person. And they didn't see the slave. The slave was somebody on the plantations or on the transatlantic um, slave routes. The ordinary person, certainly in Britain and later on in the States, hadn't really ever seen anybody who they could identify with. They didn't really consider that a black person could speak proper English or learn other languages at all, uh, as well. They didn't consider him to be a person. And the same, I think, applies to, say, take issues of, of abortion, which I do think is important, because we, because we don't see the fetus, because the fetus is in the mother's womb, mm -hmm. we still consider that that's not a real person. That is only, the child of infanticide only happens when the child's born. So for many people, they say, well, I'm just getting rid of, of something unwanted, something that's a nuisance, an encumbrance, mm -hmm. and is going to make uh, demands upon me. 
And so there are, there are all sorts of parallels. When I was looking at this, I was amazed at the amount of parallels between the unborn child and the, and the slave. One could well say that in, in today's society, uh, the, uh, the abortion, where so many people are, are aborted, and so many slaves were killed too. There's a great parallel. Mm -hmm. And another parallel then is, is how William Wilberforce and the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade sought to change public opinion. You say the fetus is hidden. Well, the slaves on their plantations were hidden as well. And one of the ways that we, we see from history that Wilberforce changed public opinion was by pictures such as that, that famous photo of the, uh, the slave ship Brooks yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly so. But, I mean, and also, not, there was a group of them. It wasn't only just one person. I mean, where there were a group of people, a group of evangelicals living in a part of London called Clapham. Clap and they gathered together, they were rich bankers, and they gathered together and decided how would they go about it. But there were other people who were involved, particularly people like Josiah Wedgwood and, and the Quakers. And they decided that one thing that one they could do is to raise public awareness. And they did it by little plaques and they had little Wedgwood plaques and people wore them. Another thing that people did is people stopped taking sugar in their tea because they considered it was a sort of form of protest. Mm -hmm. And as time went on, people began to ask the question, why are these people who are financially well off and well-established members of society, why are they doing what they're doing? But I think the other thing is that people forget how long it took. Mm -hmm. It took an enormous number of years and many setbacks in the House of Commons uh, before the Act was passed. Then some people think that we're going to do this overnight. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, looking back at the experience of the anti-slavery movement, it took a very long time. Right. It uh, took... 1797 was, was when Wilberforce began his campaign. 1807, the Slave Trade Act passed. That's 20 years. Mm. And, and I've often highlighted this myself. Um, when we take a look at how long abortion's been legal... It's it's a relatively short period of time in comparison to how long the slave trade was legal. Do, yes, you, think, do you think that gives us some sort of a of a hope when we fight against these injustices, but we we face setbacks? I, it's difficult to say. I mean, I mean, in some ways, it's more difficult because I think many women feel that the child uh, with their womb um, is theirs to do whatever they want to, and you're mm -hmm. going to have to change public opinion. It's how you change pub public opinion, and certainly if you look at what goes on in in the UK, and I don't know about in in Canada. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. You know, so many times people it comes before Parliament, and then somebody throws it out, and that was exactly what happened. And you had to, he just went on and on and on. They used all sorts of different tactics. But you're quite right. It might well be another 20 years. Who knows what sort of time frame we're looking at. But I, one feels that there might well be... Um, a growing number of people who are at least will uh, accept the idea that we can't abort uh, in in the early time, uh, you mm -hmm. know, right up to sort of um, to the end of pregnancy. Yeah. I think many more people are beginning to realize that perhaps there is a child. Now, that's quite a new idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've always said that, but a lot of people, are, you know, the ordinary people in the streets, I mean, is realize, well, I'm not sure that I should be having these abortions. So gradually, perhaps, as the, as the time time goes on, public uh, opinion is shifting. Taking steps to limit evil step by step, just like Wilberforce did with the slave trade. Mm. Mm. I think it might be step by step. He didn't... Uh 
he recognised that it wasn't possible to do it all, all at once. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would like, of course, he'd like to have got rid of uh, slavery completely all at once. And to begin with, he thought he could. When he first went into Parliament with Pitt, he thought that he would give, you know, Edwin Burke, said who was one of the great speeches he'd ever heard, and it was so persuasive that he thought he would change public opinion. But it didn't. It took 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that might well be the case for things like, like abortion, too. But not only abortion, may I say. I would say people trafficking today is one of the great things at the moment, and drugs. But people trafficking, people are now beginning to, to look and say, this is abhorrent. This cannot go on. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the one message our listeners should take away from the story of William Wilberforce? I think the I think the great sort of message is that there are still a, n- a number of inherent evils in our world, and it means it needs people to stand up and do something about it instead of sitting around and waiting for someone else to do it. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the Reverend Gerald Wilberforce discussing uh, the life and legacy of uh, his great-great-grandfather, William Wilberforce, and what that life and what that legacy can tell us today as, as we look at our own lives and we look at our own legacies. I hope you all enjoyed uh, this interview, and I hope you all enjoyed the, the information that we've been discussing as we take a look at uh, great heroes of the past and, and, and what they did. And if you've enjoyed this interview and you want to take a look at past interviews, uh, please go to unmaskingchoice.ca and check out uh, the Bridgehead Radio. These interviews uh, also get posted to YouTube. Uh, once again, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll all join us again next week.